Gold A-Sides podcast. The stories behind just great rock. Hey, well, congratulations on the new book, George Harrison, The Reluctant Beetle. They are very much back in the news again at the moment with Now and Then, the newly released song. I understand you're not a huge fan of it. Tell us why. I think it's absolutely terrible. It doesn't sound like The Beatles. It doesn't sound like John Lennon. It just sounds a mess. What around it, of course, there's been all this hype. One thing The Beatles never needed was hype. They just released one great product after another, and people were waiting for that. And you know, all the fuss has been stirred up around this is thinking of the old original Beatles is, is quite grotesque. One of your early jobs, Philip, was as a rock music critic for The Times. Does it ever leave you, once you've been a critic or a reviewer, is it possible to listen to music inactively, or, or are you always subconsciously writing a review in your head? No, not at all. I mean, there are things you just sort of, you know, sit back and let it it wash over you. And some of George's music is like that. But I try to write not as a fan, but as an objective observer and, and judge of good and bad. And I hope that works with these biographies of, you know, very young men to whom extraordinary things happen. It's, it's sort of subtitled The Reluctant Beetle. And after watching Peter Jackson's documentary a couple of years ago, you see how monstered George or everyone sort of got by John and Paul's shadow. Would you say he was reluctant or was he maybe introverted, do you think? Well, he wasn't a reluctant musician at all. He taught himself to play the guitar by listening to the radio and taught himself how to play not chords but play solos and intros and licks and you know that no one else could play even though he was 14. He was really far ahead of John Lennon or Paul McCartney when he joined their first group the Quarrymen but what he really hated was the noise of the screaming of Beatlemania and also in America where there was virtually no security and in America it was terrible the stage was constantly being invaded by hysterical young women he would have to play with a couple of them literally dangling from his neck. <laughs> um, but still keep smiling because a beetle could never be cross. Although George was capable of being very, very cross, actually. The screams were for George and for Paul. I mean, he liked that in the end, but it started to get on his nerves, uh, particularly when it was spoiling the music and really sort of stopping the Beatles from progressing musically as long as they did those live shows. And obviously George's anniversary is coming up this month, 22 years. What do you think George would be doing if he was still with us? Do you think he'd be touring? Do you think he'd be hosting a podcast like Paul McCartney is? Or George had many more sides to him than even John. John was more than a musician. He was a poet and an artist. But George was so many different contrasting sides. He became a film, a movie mogul uh, with a company called Handmade Films, which actually in the end cost him huge money, almost sent him bankrupt but he was a very good record producer but he also he was an absolutely passionate gardener he wanted to be remembered as a gardener before a a musician yet at the same Mm -hmm. time he absolutely loved the smell of petroleum in the pits at grand prix races so everywhere you look there is a contradiction with george that's what makes him interesting to me that's right he was a big formula one fan wasn't he big formula one fan in fact, at the end of his friendship with Eric Clapton, it was nothing to do with Patty Boyd. George was absolutely passionate about the ukulele and Travelling Wilburys, this supergroup that George instigated. They all shared his love of the ukulele and Clapton had no time for the ukulele and their, their friendship really founded on that. Tell us about the time that you got into the Beatles dressing room, Newcastle on time. You were just a 22-year-old kid. What was it like to be in the room with the Beatles? It was very nice, actually. I sort of followed Paul McCartney in. John and Ringo and Paul 
all talked to me. The only one who didn't actually, who looked really miserable, was George. It was stayed in the background, and of course, I absolutely loved it. Didn't want to leave. John, particularly, John was going through so much at that time, and yet you wouldn't have known. He was talking to me like I was his oldest friend, and I said. Oh, I like it. Sort of like, can I stick around? Oh, yes, stick around. But then their roadie, Neil Aspinall, came and threw me out because they could never do something like that. But they had a roadie to say no. They never said no. Wow, that is absolutely amazing that you had that experience. That is honestly just like, you'd be one of a very few people that could tell that story. That is incredible. Thank you. In a few words, yeah. Amazing. Um, also, uh, I know you met Yoko, I believe, after you'd done John's book um, in the early 80s. She's coming up 91 years old. I feel like somebody needs to absolutely mine her incredible knowledge and write a really comprehensive book about her because there really haven't been any incredible bios on Yoko. Would you agree? Absolutely. And, and she did talk to me at, at great length for my John Lennon biography and told me extraordinary things. I mean, she came from one of the four richest families in Japan. Her great-grandfather was the shogun's personal banker. And when John could finally leave America without fear of not being let in again in the mid-70s and went to Japan, he saw a picture of Yoko's great-grandfather who had funny little glasses like John's glasses and was a, a musician himself as well as being a financier. John looked at this picture of Yoko's great-grandfather and said, that's me in another life. Wow. And Yoko said, please don't say that. He was assassinated. Oh, so wow. Chilling, chilling moment. Um, but then Yoko, she also showed me family albums of her when her family used to come by sea from Japan to San Francisco when she was a child. They had shipboard fancy dress contests for children. And there's Yoko dressed up as Shirley Temple with a giant lollipop. You'd never think Yoko would be seen in those circumstances, but she could laugh. She's was thought to be so humorless. She's not humorless. She really fascinates me. I, I wish you would write a book on her because I think you would do an amazing job. There is one coming out, I believe, quite soon. Oh, oh I'll look out for that because, yeah, I've, I've just recently become quite interested in her life. What a lady. And, well, when she goes, a lot of information is going to go with her. So It's true. And, of course, now she always called mad, you know, for the things she used to do because in Britain they'd never heard of conceptual art. Um, but now people like Tracy Emin, Damien Hurst, think she's incredible pioneer and she has real respect in the art world really does wow so what are you working on next i mean your your list of of biographies is so impressive surely you've got another one on the go already well i haven't really decided um i don't want to do another musician they are such hard work mm, amazing um your new book it is out now george harrison philip norman what an absolute treat to talk to you and i can't wait to see what you do next thank you for talking to us Thank you very much, Tracy. Thank you. Gold A-Sides podcast, the stories behind just great rock. If you enjoyed this podcast, click to share with family or friends. For just great rock, listen to Gold FM anytime, anywhere on iHeartRadio.